Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories about the age of American airships. First, he tells the story of the first American-built rigid airship, the Shenandoah, from its inception to its tragic end. Then he tells the story of the experimental airship Macon, which hoped to usher in an era of air-based carriers. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Today is September 4th, 2018, and it is an auspicious day, because 95 years ago on this date, the United States made a great leap forward in aviation history with the maiden voyage of the ZR-1, America's first American-built rigid airship. The ZR-1 was a marvel of modern technology and absolutely unique among airships in the world at the time, and it represents that brief and spectacular era when behemoths of the sky floated majestically around the world. It is history that deserves to be remembered. On a chilly night, October 19, 1917, 11 German Zeppelins took off from their bases, planning what was one of the largest bombing raids of the era. The raid was expected to be 25 hours long, demonstrating the significant endurance advantage that airships had over aircraft at the time. The Zeppelins were meant to attack London, part of a mission to attack the British homeland in the hopes of forcing British aircraft to be redeployed away from attacking German bases and to terrify the British population. The German Zeppelin raids over London were particularly terrifying as the nearly silent airships were nearly invisible at night, and night flying was particularly dangerous for aircraft at the time. Although they were attacked by British anti-aircraft guns, they managed to drop all their bombs. 36 people were killed in the raid and 55 were injured. A single 300-pound bomb from Zeppelin L-45 fell at Glenview Road, Hither Green, London, destroying three houses and damaging many others. Five women and nine children were killed, including seven siblings of the Kingston family between the ages of three and 18. It was the last bomb dropped on London by a Zeppelin. But that night, the Allies would get their revenge. While returning to the base, the airships ran into strong headwinds and heavy fog, and in the confusion, eight of the eleven wandered over Allied territory in France. Two were destroyed by Allied aircraft, and two were attacked by French aircraft. Both were forced down. One of those, the Zeppelin L-49, was forced to land, realizing as the tracer bullets from the French spads flew by that they could not escape, and that a hit from one of those rounds would cause their hydrogen-filled airship to explode. The crew hung out a white flag, and the French pilots directed them to land near Bourbon-le-Bain in northeastern France. Before the French pilots could land, the German commander destroyed the craft's wireless. He tried to set the airship on fire, but was stopped by a local man. Twenty-one German crew were taken prisoner. But more than that, the L-49 was landed, undamaged, 
it was the first German airship to be captured intact. The L-49 was studied and reverse-engineered. The U.S. intended to use the design of the L-49 as the basis for the first American-built rigid airship, but to show the danger of traveling in those airships at the time, the U.S. design was influenced by the crashes of two other airships. The British had used the information garnered from the study of the L-49 to help design their own class of airship, the R-38. Initially, four airships of the class were to be built, but three of the orders were canceled as the armistice ended the war. The R-38 was also canceled while under construction due to budget constraints, but the United States expressed interest and the airship was purchased and completed. At the time, it was the largest airship in the world. The plan was to do some 50 hours of flight testing to test the airship and train its U.S. crew. On August 27, 1921, while being tested in northeast England, the structure of the airship collapsed amidships. Witnesses said both ends drooped, followed by a fire, and then an explosion. 28 Britons and 16 Americans died in the crash. The L-49 was of a special design, the U-Class, called a height climber. The design had been made to maximize the ability to climb, making the Zeppelin safer from anti-aircraft fire. But that required reducing the weight by weakening the structure. The inquest over the crash with the R-38 found that the structure was not able to manage the stresses of maneuvering and had not incorporated new features of airship design that allowed a stronger structure. The U.S. took these lessons to heart. Unlike the L-49 and the R-38, the Roma was a semi-rigid airship. Rather than having a full internal structure, such airships are built around a rigid keel. The Roma was designed and built in Italy and purchased by the United States in 1921. It was, at the time, the largest semi-rigid airship in the world. But disaster struck in February of 1922. The airship's box steering system failed during a test flight and the ship swung around where it hit high voltage wires. Filled with flammable hydrogen gas, the Roma burst into flames. 34 of the airship's crew were killed. And so when the first American-built rigid airship was laid down on June 24, 1922, based very much on the German L-49, it incorporated a number of structural improvements which was supposed to help it avoid the fate of the British R-38. And to avoid the fate of the Roma, the Americans decided that they would use the rare expensive but non-flammable gas helium as the lifting gas rather than hydrogen. The construction of the airship, originally called the ZR-1, was quite a feat of engineering. It was to be 680 feet long, more than 100 feet longer than the battleship USS Texas. It was to be assembled in the newly constructed Hangar 1 at Naval Air Station Lakehurst in New Jersey. Hangar 1, at 966 feet long, was at the time the world's record holder as the single largest room in the world. The structure was made out of duralumin, a type of age-hardened aluminum alloy, and manufactured at the U.S. Naval Aircraft Factory at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. The parts were then transported by truck and rail to Lakehurst for assembly. The first ring for the structure arrived April 22, 1922, and was more than 78 feet across. Rings were connected together with longitudinal girders. Tensioned wires added strength and stability. Inside, there was room for 20 gas cells, which would hold the lifting gas. The gas cells were made of rubberized cotton lined with gold beater skin, which was taken from the outer membranes of the intestines of cattle, and was one of the most gas-impervious materials known at the time. While helium has the advantage of not being explosive, the use of helium offered some unique challenges. 
For example, as an airship expends fuel for its engines, it becomes lighter, causing the airship to rise. To maintain neutral buoyancy, a hydrogen airship would simply release some hydrogen gas, as hydrogen is cheap and easy to produce. But helium was expensive and rare, too expensive to merely vent into the atmosphere. In fact, filling up the airship consumed a significant portion of the entire world's helium reserves. The ZR-1 instead had a system that condensed and collected water vapor from the engines, which counterbalanced the weight lost as the ship burned fuel. The frame was then covered with high-grade cotton fabric, laced tightly into place over the entire hull and given several coats of dope, which shrunk the material tight against the framework. The final coat was mixed with aluminum powder to provide a smooth, weather-resistant skin, which also reflected the sun's heat away from the lifting gas. The airship was launched on August 20th, 1923, which means that still inside the hangar it was removed from its shorings and floating free. On September 4th, 95 years ago today, some 15,000 people watched as 420 sailors and marines walked the ZR-1 out of Hangar 1 for the first time, and using four of her six 300-horsepower, eight-cylinder Packard gasoline engines, lifted off the field with 29 people on board. It was the world's first-ever flight of a helium-inflated, rigid airship. The ZR-1 remained aloft for 55 minutes. The ZR-1 underwent a number of trials over the next month, flying as far as St. Louis for the 1923 St. Louis Air Races. The flight went without a hitch, but the airship was yet to be tested for its value to the fleet. The ship was christened in a ceremony on October 10th. The Secretary of the Navy, Edwin Demby's wife, Marion, did the honors, christening the ship the USS Shenandoah, named after the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. The word Shenandoah was derived from a Native American word for the river, which some translate as beautiful daughter of the stars. The ship was commissioned the same day under the command of Navy Commander Frank McCrary. The Shenandoah met its first great challenge in January of 1924. The ship had been working on mooring with the giant Lakehurst mooring mass. The mooring mass was a technological marvel in itself at over 160 feet tall with an elevator, communication systems, electric lighting, and piping for gasoline, oil, helium, and water ballast. Once more, the crew could exit the airship via a gangway from the nose. A mooring tower offered certain advantages over a hangar and avoided the difficult process of docking. Moreover, on long trips, hangars would not always be available. The Navy had talked about using the Shenandoah for Arctic research. On such a trip, docking facilities would be unavailable and mooring towers would have to be used for resupply. But mooring was a difficult process and took quite a lot of practice and testing. On January 14th, the Weather Service issued a warning about gale force winds. Rather than dock the Shenandoah ahead of the storm, the Navy decided to leave it moored to the mooring station to test the mooring. That turned out to be a mistake. A gust of nearly 80 miles per hour struck, collapsing the top fin and rolling the ship over. That twisted the nose cone, attached the mooring tower off, and the crippled Shenandoah was off for an exciting ride. The forward gas cells deflated and the airship pitched forward. A crash might have destroyed the Shenandoah, but the crew jettisoned ballast and ordered the crew members aft to right the ship. The ship careened across the field, nose still down, narrowly missing the treetops. The engines were started and the crew slowly regained control, shifting ballast and fuel until the Shenandoah was righted. The damaged ship rode ahead of the storm, finishing 50 miles away in Newark. Following the storm, the ship had to be nursed back, difficult to control without a nose and with its twisted top fin. But the Shenandoah had survived the worst January storm in the area in decades. President Coolidge sent a telegram of congratulations. After repairs, the Shenandoah began testing for practical application with the Navy, demonstrating that an airship could be valuable in the scouting role. 
A Navy oiler, the USS Potoka, was fitted with a mooring mast and specially modified as an airship tender. In October, the Shenandoah flew across the nation, from Lakehurst to San Diego, up to Washington and back, testing newly built mooring towers. It was the first rigid airship to cross North America. In 1924, the ship was laid up for repairs and modifications. Helium was so scarce that some of Shenandoah's helium was needed to inflate the new airship USS Los Angeles. During the process, the ship's captain, Zachary Lansdowne, had 10 of the ship's automatic gas valves removed. The decision saved several hundred pounds in weight and it limited the release of expensive helium gas, but it came at a price. As an airship rises, the gas inside the gas bags expands and the pressure valves are there to release gas so that the gas bags don't expand to the point where they damage the airship's structure. By removing 10 of the Shenandoah's 18 automatic gas valve releases, Captain Lansdowne had limited the ability of the Shenandoah to gain altitude quickly, because if it rose too quickly, the gas valves that were less could not keep up with the expansion of the gas. In September, the ship left for a promotional tour of the Midwest, with a plan to visit state fairs and fly over Midwest cities. The trip was a risk. The thunderstorm season could be brutal in the Midwest. Commander Lansdowne argued that the trip should be cancelled, or at least postponed past mid-September, when the season usually subsided. But his superiors would only allow the trip to be postponed until September 3rd, when the Shenandoah was expected to make a visit to the Ohio State Fair. On September 3rd, the airship was over Ohio when it hit a storm cell. Spectators described the ship as being tossed around like a bobber, at one point nearly standing on end. Convective updrafts lifted it as fast as a thousand feet per minute, more than the remaining valve releases could handle. The Shenandoah broke in two, the aft section plummeting, killing the engineers in the section. The control car broke loose and dropped to the ground, killing the men inside, including Commander Lansdowne. Seven men in the bow managed to get enough control to release gases and free balloon to a soft landing. In all, 14 members of the Shenandoah's crew died in the accident. After the accident, many people blamed the Army and the Navy for ignoring Commander Lansdowne's warnings about the weather. Airships were really only built to be flown in good weather, and they are at particular risk over land where there can be violent updrafts. Aviator Billy Mitchell's criticism was so strong, essentially arguing that public relations had overcome safety, that he was court-martialed for his criticism and his career was ruined. But other people blamed Commander Lansdowne for the removal of the gas pressure valves. In a sorry display, spectators at the scene took away souvenirs, heedless of the aviator's deaths. The farmer upon whose land the ship had crashed charged visitors by the carload to visit the site. Today, various memorials mark the locations of the wreckage and memorialize the crash. As a result of the inquiry, the military decided to strengthen the internal structure of its remaining airships and decided to start paying more official attention to weather forecasting, but in the end, the airships just turned out to be unsafe. Of America's four rigid airships, only one, the USS Los Angeles, made it all the way to retirement. In 1933, the USS Akron was destroyed in a storm at sea and 73 people died. Two years after that, its sister ship, the USS Macon, was destroyed in another storm at sea and two people died. And two years after that, the Hindenburg exploded as it was trying to land at Naval Air Station Lakehurst. The accidents put an end to the era of the common use of rigid airships. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and of course, some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. We'd also like to welcome back Betty Jo, my grandmother and mother of the history guy. One of the things they think makes this pair of episodes so cool is that rigid airships are really cool. I th These are things that I think, you know, are, are cool even if 
uh, we don't use them and they're apparently very impractical. But you still see uh, dirigibles of all kinds, and especially these big, these big zeppelins uh, in all kinds of media. And I think this mm -hmm. episode <laughs> explains why those futures uh, never really came mm -hmm. to be. Yes, I mean, they were very spectacular. And they, I mean, they were uh, amazing for their time. And so, yeah, there's tons and tons of film of them. Uh, there's film of them flying over cities and all sorts of things. And so that's, that's one of the fun things when you're making the videos uh, is that we do have a good de a, a degree of media that we might not have for some other things. And, you know, that media is most of it public domain. But, I mean, you can see, I mean, it's hard to imagine today because I don't think we really grasp how big they are. Uh, I, just, I don't think that that we really really grasp now you can go you you can go to Santa Clara there and and to the Ames Research Laboratory and you can see that one of the hangars is still there and just get a get an idea of how massive these were so I mean shoot if I had a camera I'd been filming the thing and that's one of the reasons why they were filming so much when uh, uh, when the Hindenburg was yeah. landing at, at Lakehurst uh, and so yeah we do have a great record of these things even though there weren't very many of them. the U.S. only ever operated a handful of these um, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because we were rolling up to uh, uh, we were rolling up towards the Second World War. What if we had still had one operational at the war? Would they have been of any use? Uh, I honestly don't know. It's hard to it's hard to imagine. Uh, they they certainly I mean there there were reasons why we built them and we certainly had ideas on how we would be able to use them in combat. Uh, but by the time or or you know in wartime, uh, but by the time we get to to World War Two, it's hard to imagine that they would have put up much of a fight against, say, you know, a zero or a... a no, a, no. But see, but then the idea was that they would be kept out of sight and they would be yeah. operating, you know, aircraft that would be used as scouting aircraft, yeah. But, you know, at the time that we got... The, I mean, we started to get these uh, uh, scouting aircraft that had, you know, incredible ranges, like yeah. the PBYs and et cetera, and, they, you know, they really... The, the whole purpose would run away, yeah. I don't, I don't think there's any chance they could have been used in bombing in the Second no. World War. But, I mean, that, that, you know, what they were trying to do... Uh, with the Macon, uh, I mean, that was the plan that was for them going forward. And the Macon was not that far off of when the war started. No, they and we didn't even I mean, we didn't even use them for that long. There's a fairly short period no, no. of when we were building these things. And it's all just <laughs> in that, that interwar. Uh, <laughs> we did. We didn't manage to hang on to them for very long. <laughs> well, and, uh, the thing about it, uh, you used the word impractical. And that was uh, that probably explains the whole thing. Yeah. But if you look at the technology that they used and where they move forward, absolutely amazing. But if you put it all together and say this one and then this one and this one, basically the, when, when we end up doing the videos, why we talk, we show them and then we crash them and then we show them. <laughs> and the other thing that is very, uh, we all have to be really aware of is most of it was weather. Mm -hmm. Most of it was a fact we didn't know what weather was going to do. And yeah. that affects everybody even today. It's one yeah. of those things that you have to be realistic about is you can control nature to a point. But be, and then if you put something that big in the sky, then look what you end up with. Well, and today yeah. it would probably be much safer because we'd have a much better idea where storm That's cells true. are. That's true. We would anyway, be able to de deal with that much better. One of the ideas was Arctic research, and actually quite a lot of Arctic research was done with, with airships. Uh, and, you know, at the time, it was very risky to be trying to fly a plane up there. Uh, and uh, But uh, an airship had the longevity to be able to do that. So, I mean, there was some really, you know, there was some interest to the technology. They yeah. certainly did play a role in the Second World War, or they I'm did. sorry, in the First World War, not in the Second World War, in the First World War. Uh, and they, you can imagine at the time, I mean, they're, they're very steampunky looking yeah. things. Yeah. You can imagine <laughs> looking at those and thinking they're the future. And it's so funny to look at them now and see yeah. them as being, you know, anachronisms. Yeah. Well, and if you look at when they were launching and all the people standing down there watching, it had to have been a huge phenomenon. And, 
and, and real encouragement to people to think that we had the, the ability to, to put something like that in the sky. Yeah, to make something that big fly and operate it, yeah. You know, a lot of the uh, research from the NACA, the National Advisory Committee on, on uh, Aviation, uh, or on aeronautics, was done on the, on the blimps and the zeppelins, and we learned an awful lot about avionics from them. And now, as they look to use them because there's uh, some real uses for airships uh, in things like weather research, yeah. uh, they're digging up some of that old research that we learned from them. So we st there's still things that we picked up from them yeah. that's still being used today that might go to cutting edge technology today. Uh, because still, no matter what, everything else that we have that goes up requires that you have a ready fuel supply. Uh, yeah. And they can stay in the air for a very long time uh, with much less fuel. And that's, that's yeah. pretty exciting. They also, if you watch... Um, uh, they started developing different types of cloth. They were yeah. they were started putting things yeah. into into cotton, uh, and so if you think about that, there's a whole there again. You've got something that was developed for a need and a use that became something you know that's that, that's every day every day now. That we used to yeah that was that was a big change from gold beaters yeah. cloth it was literally made out of cow intestines, uh, and to being able to make rubberized cotton, which turned out to be what was the most uh, successful. It, yeah. it would have been an awful lot of uh, intestine to <laughs> to get. Get one of yeah, those things in the I don't know air. how much gold bleeder, gold beater cloth you get out of a particular cow. <laughs> many, many, many cows. You know, I guess if you're you're you know you're killing cows anyway to to yeah. eat them, and at least yeah, I don't think they were killing for them the... for the intestines. I mean, I don't know if we use the intestines now. I don't know what, what do we do with the gold the... beater. What do we do with the gold beater cloth now? I don't have any idea if we're putting putting it to use, but uh, but yeah, that's you know. Early in this episode, you talk about that, you know, part of the reason why uh, Zeppelins were such a big deal, which is when they did that bombing attack over London in World War One. And I think mm -hmm. it was it was telling that, you know, during the attack, those things were terrifying. They're just dark and up in the sky someplace yeah. dropping bombs. But then on their way back, I mean, you know, what makes that attack fall apart is that they yeah. is weather. <laughs> the wind blows, yeah. <laughs> the wind blows in the wrong direction <laughs> and they get caught. So they were they were and it's interesting that they were vulnerable to the anti-aircraft yeah. that was available on the front but they didn't have that in London. Yeah. I think we did another episode at one point about uh, some ships with anti-aircraft guns trying to knock down. Oh yeah, yeah. And essentially essentially zeppelins were not accurate enough to hit a ship and ships were couldn't shoot high enough to hit a zeppelin and so they you know shoot at each other for hours <laughs> on end. So it's it's interesting where those technologies are going at the yeah. time and and so that's a, I mean, it's that's an odd per precursor to the Second yeah. World War, which is quite a bit different. But yeah, yeah I mean, that, if you think about those, I mean, they're totally silent. You don't know they're there yeah. until the bombs are dropping. Uh, and, you know, it's not like they were used to the Blitz at that time. And yeah. a tragic story where it hits one house and kills six siblings that were, you know, yeah. it was between six and 18, I guess, yeah. the whole family. They, well, yeah. you know, they can't, uh, they were not able to be all that precise in their targets. I mean, they were flying yeah. over the city you, and just... You can see the city below. You, yeah, you chucking bombs out. They, yeah. they, but it was, you but know, it's one of those... they carry much larger bombs than aircraft yeah. of the day. And so well, those bombs could be quite destructive. And, of course, the reason why London didn't have defenses uh, the way that they did during World War II is that, that there was hardly any expectation that anything had that kind of range. Yeah. And so, you know, once you got the Zeppelins, they had way, way greater range than anything, any, any kind of plane that they had, which was only going to... You know, was going to be lucky if it could make it across the channel. <laughs> that, that kind of you, thing. You have to give uh, props to those Germans too. That yeah. were, I mean, that, you were flying an explosive gas bag over the enemy. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, the, whole, the whole reason <laughs> they captured the one is because the guys, the guys, yeah, they the guys are being shot at. It's going to blow up. Yeah. 
which they were fully and you know that was it's interesting i i don't i can't remember if you mentioned it this but part of the reason you know why the the hindenburg used hydrogen was because the u.s was using helium uh so when the u.s had had much of the world's helium supply and we for a very long time we uh we i mean that that went on even into the cold war where we were embargoing all the helium because we had it Oh. Yeah, so that they didn't really have a choice. They couldn't. They couldn't get the yeah. safer gas. Although, uh, as we see in this one, uh, helium uh, is has its problems as well. Uh, one being yeah, that we never had mean, enough. Yeah, that we never had enough. I mean, it, you know, there came a point where the helium reserve was so full that we started selling it off because we had more helium than we could deal with. So, uh, but I mean, that was and that's a whole other story too. We got, of course, a whole episode on helium and, and how yeah. we ended up with with uh, having you know large supplies of helium. So, I mean, those stories, they all tie together. It's very interesting. But uh, it is interesting to have a weapon of war uh, that was essentially so vulnerable that it is a balloon filled with explosive gas. And, yeah. and you know, we still managed to use that. And so the- it's, it's, all, it's all just an interesting. These things were just fabulous. They're just fantastic. And, you know, I wish uh, I could have seen one because I don't think that we can really yeah. grasp how how amazing these things were but they were you know anything that big is going to be uh, difficult to keep in the air and that's what we found out my question to both of you is um if you'd have had a chance would you have volunteered to go beyond one uh, knowing what i know now <laughs> at the at the time if it's like it's like hey you want to get on the i mean on a, <laughs> on a big balloon <laughs> it is it is kind of funny it, it seems strange today that they were yeah. operated by the navy not by yes. the uh, not by the army air corps yeah, yeah. i did want to i did was going to mention that but one of the you know one of the reasons i think that today you know we've had an air force for so long we think of of that of them as separate yeah. groups but at the time uh the Navy had reasons why they would want stuff that could go into the air, and the Army had reasons. But it is interesting that you know that these were these were Navy blimps. I think they sailed more like a ship, and the idea yeah. was that they're going to operate off of ships. But the original role, the original idea was to, that these would work as reconnaissance for the Navy. I don't, yeah. I don't think the U.S. ever thought about them as, as bombers. No. Uh, you know, as, as the use that they had in the First World War. I think the, always that idea, and of course, uh, you know, naval aviation came a long way much faster. Yeah, and that's, I mean that's a good chunk of what happened is that, you know, we did this technology moved so quickly, uh, but around them, because it certainly moved. I, I would think today that if we were going to build uh, you know, a war blimp that we could make it um, probably sturdier and uh, yeah, uh, so, so that well, I mean, we used we used war blimps in the Second yeah, World we War. We did actually, yeah. Uh, and uh, they were, I mean, they could stay in the air for a very long. They're much smaller than these, but they stay in the yeah. air for a lot longer. They were a lot more durable, and they were great for carrying depth charges. They were yeah. they were fantastic for submarine duty. Yeah, and that's why we used them. Yeah, yeah, we used a lot of them. Uh, I there's another episode that I've written that hasn't come out yet that we talk about some some of the stuff that they did because they uh, protected the the West Coast out of out of Sunnyvale. Uh, mm-hmm. There in San Francisco, uh, and out of Moffett Field, and so they we used them for you know coastal patrols and stuff all the time. It was uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was really interesting because it's not where you you tend to think of uh, balloons in the Second World War. You think of that as a First World War thing, but uh, they were still useful. It's just they were also way way smaller for the most mm-hmm. part. The blimps we were using in World mm-hmm. War Two, they yeah they yeah, these so they made ones. them a lot less uh, much more agile and a lot less yeah. uh, vulnerable to the weather and and. Uh, I mean, but I mean, we still had losses, and uh, you know, that's, that's another one of the episodes that we have on. Uh, we have quite a few episodes on blimps and dirigibles. And, Actually, kind uh, of surprising, uh, just how much uh, balloons uh, had, because we we also have one uh, Operation Outward, which is about the these balloons that we just we tied 
yeah, metal cables to them. Germany, to, yeah. yeah, to just knock stuff that knock stuff around essentially. Well, uh, we also but, talked about one in the Civil War too. Oh, uh, that's and right. So, yeah. So there's yeah, there's a lot of good stories. I mean, they're uh, they're amazing in a number of different ways. And of course, people still end up going uh, enjoy going up in hot air balloons. And, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like it's gone away. Well, and we just uh, talked just very seriously about uh, a balloon that uh, <clears throat> came over Alaska, but part, uh, part of Montana, right. and uh, uh, and who knows how many more they talk about. And so balloons are not gone. Yeah. No. They apparently still have some some military yeah, applications. Whole, whole other uses for them. Yeah. As far as we know, they do. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's. We talked about the way that these, you know, the helium was was so short. Uh, you know, when we built the the Los Angeles, we didn't even have enough helium to to run both yeah. both of yeah, them at yeah. the same time. Yeah, to, uh, uh, we, we took to take, take take the helium out of the Los Angeles to inflate the Shenandoah. Yeah. Or was it, uh, the reverse. Whatever the, it was, I yeah. think I think the reverse. But either way, it's it's one of those interesting. Uh, yeah, those... And that was that was the world's supply. Yeah. Of, of helium. Yeah. Crazy to think that these things were so big that they were using not just not just like an appreciable, but like a majority of the world's supply yes. of helium. Well, I mean, that whole story about helium is an interesting story, too. That's, yeah. that's another really good episode. I mean, that's, and, you know, we don't talk about it as much here because we talk about it in that other episode. Yeah. But, I mean, that that really, I mean, you know, the disasters that came with, what, three of the four American yeah. Rigid airships uh, largely had to do with, uh, you know, modifications that we made because we didn't have enough helium. Yeah. And um, we couldn't afford to just uh, vent, you know, when, yeah. when, when we needed to, yeah. Yeah, because they—that's ultimately, you know—they talk about that as being part of the reason why the Shenandoah went down, is it couldn't vent that air fast enough, uh, and ultimately, you know, these things were really impressive looking, but uh, as as Betty Cho said, you know, the, they were very, uh, <laughs> they were very at the at the whims of the weather, and when you get some some wind hitting you or something like that, they it's really easy to yeah. lose control of them. And that's, I mean, that's what happened. They, they were also, all of the, all of the ones that we had were all experimental. Yes. And we learned a lot from them. Like we said, the, the NACA did a lot of research on them. And, you know, who's to say if that technology kept developing, you know, what we might have come up with. Yeah. You know, but the idea of like flying them cross country, and we did several times. We flew yeah. them cross country successfully, but you just don't do that during, you know, storm season. Yeah, uh, and you know they were going to be used for Arctic research. They might have been fantastic for Arctic Arctic research. So it is, uh, in a way, you can see. And Billy Mitchell made this argument uh, that it was somewhat tragic yeah. uh, that the accidents that we had kept us from developing the technology into what it might have been. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, we also know now that everything that they did, we now do with aircraft. Yeah, uh, and uh, probably aircraft technologies at least turned out to be a lot more reliable. I mean, three out of four don't, <laughs> don't <Yeah>. crash, <laughs> or at least we get to see the Super Bowl and NASCAR. Uh, uh, oh, that's true. Yeah, we still we are still using bumps today, and yeah, so yeah. that's good too. Yeah, that's, there's only a handful of them. There's, there's really there's really only a handful of blimps in the in the world these days that are still functional. Yeah, um, but I think we're, I think we're actually building new and operating them with uh, for weather research and stuff like that. I think they're they're very good for for you know climate sort of yeah. research because they uh, they you know can stay aloft for yeah. such a long time. And it's so a lot they're, they're safer nowadays because we can we can tell you where the wind's going to be and whether you're going to hit because uh, uh, that's I mean that's why almost all of the ones that went down. I hit some kind of storm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you hit a storm cell and you're just. Yeah. And now we, you know, we know the weather much better. We can avoid that much better. I know this will this will date me too. But I mean, back in the day, uh, when Johnny Carson would ever have something where the uh, people in the audience would uh, participate somehow, then yeah. they would give out stuff. And one of the things they regularly gave out were blimp rides, were rides on the Goodyear <laughs> blimp. Yeah. I, I, I was when I was a kid. I was like, "That'd be awesome! I, just, I want to go to Carson so I can ride on a blimp." Well, those uh, ones and, don't. And, those ones don't fall down very often. I, <laughs> no, I don't think they actually ever lost one. So, yeah. <laughs>
Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? You know, we had, we had a great time. It's always, you know, it there's, always, really there's so good. much to watch on Magellan. And, you know, there's a reason I love Magellan, because there's just so many different things that you could go to. So we happened to go onto a nature documentary, uh, and we watched a documentary called, called Ice Dogs. Uh, and it's about Greenland dogs, which are those, uh, the, I think, actually, I saw something recently where they think that is actually the, the single oldest breed, but if not, they're among the oldest breeds of dogs wow. in the world. Uh, and uh, they, you know, love to run in the snow. Uh, and it was really the story of two sets of dogs. One was, uh, they were Inuit or, or you know, natives yes. live in Greenland. I don't know. 500 miles north of the Arctic Circle, they got a village there. And most of the time, the dogs protect the village from the polar bears. Uh, except, and then in summer, they strap them up to the sleds and they go out and they and they get enough food to make it through. They kill muskots and they, and they yeah. kill, kill seals. So, so you got like two, you got like, you know, 18 days of summer. And in that time, you got to hunt enough food to live to hunker down and the rest of the year so that the dogs can protect you from the polar Off bear. they go. And then thank heaven they come back and bring food for the, yeah. and they don't need freezers. Yeah, it's, it's really that's nice. true. Because it was what thirty-two below Celsius. What was it? Yeah, so it's, but you always share with you know you kill a muskox, you give some to the dogs, or you kill you always kill an extra seal and you feed that to the dogs. And and uh, it's it's very interesting how they live up yeah. there. And then you know the dogs are very you know started off with one of them there got too cold and the puppies died. That's what yeah. we got. It's the first thing that we got to watch. And so they're crying, but they you know they and the other one was an explorer. Uh, who was going up to, uh, uh, I mean, way, way up, what is that called? It's not oh, very The island, island it's, that's, uh, uh, that's, I'd ride out. Svalberg, Svalsberg, uh, ah. Svalberg, whatever. It is, it's like, it's the northernmost uh, uh, of the of the cantons of uh, Norway. Uh, and uh, it's it's halfway between Norway and the North Pole. Uh, and he just goes, he, what they were doing is they were taking the dogs up there to test the most efficient way to travel with the dogs and the sleds. So theirs was an experiment. And it was really interesting because they took the dogs and they'd have either three or five or however many. They'd attach them to the sled. and then But the men would ski. Yeah, the men were on so skis. But, would, I mean, they were still attached being pulled by the dog. So they're trying to figure out when you got the dog, the guy on the skis and the, the sled, inter, uh, what's the, the most efficient way to hitch them up? So. Huh. Oh, well, and, and the easiest way, that way you're using the energy of the person and you're in the energy of the dogs. And you can take that much more with you. And I don't understand why we need to know this, but it was really <laughs> interesting that they decided to show it to us. So that's what I mean. You can just you can go to Magellan at any given time, and you can watch. I mean, uh, you you can watch history or true crime, or I mean, this is kind of a combination of history and nature. And I mean, there's just always so much to watch on Magellan. What have you been watching lately on Magellan TV? So it's speaking of the wide range of things that you can watch, I, I was watching an archaeology documentary. I love archaeology. Uh, I feel like in a different life, uh, I might have been an archaeologist. It's called Mystery of the Roman Skulls. And what it's about is that they, they'd they been finding these skulls without the rest of the bones in London uh, for, for decades, apparently. But especially they were building uh, they were building some, some infrastructure and they started just pulling up just like clusters of these things. And so they're just skulls. They, they have no other bones and they're in weird groups. And so it's a mystery. And so... I, it's about that mystery. I have to say, I don't know that uh, you'll have to kind of watch it yourself and try to decide if you think that any one of the particular possibilities they suggest is is what you think it is. Because the truth is, I we just don't know. Um, they talk about one of the possibilities is they're like, oh, well, it could have been that Boudicca's revolt. 
Uh, we did an episode about Boudicca, and she comes through and uh, burns London to the ground, uh, Londinium at the time. And so they were like thinking that these were maybe all decapitated heads of the victims of Boudicca for the, the folks who had stayed behind. But there's there's some reasons why maybe that's that's unlikely. And then there are all these other questions about, because in the Roman period, London was pretty peaceful. And so they're trying to understand, you know, why are there all these skulls? Uh, if it was a peaceful in that in that period, and they they really come up with some interesting ideas on how maybe these skulls got there. Uh, but there's there's always it seems like every time they have you know this theory, they at the end of it they are like, but this you know this seems to say that maybe it's not that. And so it's it's a true it's really a mystery, and I, I think it's really cool. You know, it really connects history and archaeology. It's really really interesting, and just like you said, there is always something interesting to watch on Magellan TV, and you honestly never know uh, what it's going to be. I looked through and I was looking through all kinds of stuff, and then that was one of the ones that I had just I had stopped on, and it was really really worth the watch. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of the History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership, or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy tells the story of the Macon. The age of rigid airships, like the famous Hindenburg, was a brief but exciting time when the impressive vessels were seen to be at the forefront of a technological revolution. They played an important part in the First World War, especially as used by Germany, and after the war they were the subject of much research and production by nations all around the world because they were still thought to be important military assets. In the 1920s, the United States began testing the idea of using rigid airships as aircraft carriers able to launch and recover aircraft, which led to the construction of two extraordinary airships, USS Akron and USS Macon, among the largest airships ever built. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The United States had first entered the dirigible game with the construction of the USS Shenandoah, constructed between 1922 and 1923, the first of four rigid airships built by the U.S. Navy. Instead of using the abundant but highly flammable hydrogen for lift, the U.S. instead chose helium, much more rare but also considerably safer. The U.S. also for decades controlled the only no-helium reserves in the world. The second ship commissioned by the Navy was USS Los Angeles, which was commissioned on November 25, 1924. The Los Angeles was actually built by the German Zeppelin Company in Germany as part of reparations promised at the end of World War I. The Navy made some adjustments once the Los Angeles reached the United States, including changing its lifting gas from hydrogen to helium. On July 3, 1929, the Los Angeles was in the air, cruising at a speed of 48 knots near the airship's base at Lakehurst, New Jersey, when a U-01 plane piloted by Lieutenant A.W. Gorton successfully hooked on to a dangling trapeze and was then released. Testing of the trapeze was meant to investigate if using the airships to carry planes was even feasible. The trapeze included a U-shaped yoke, while the plane had been fitted with a hook. The pilot carefully flew his plane beneath the dirigible, lined up the hook, and connected the plane to the underside of the Los Angeles. The pilot could then disconnect the hook using a cord in the cabin and return to flight. Several other tests followed, and the concept was judged feasible, but there were numerous technological and engineering issues to iron out. The trapeze system was later designed to be retractable, so planes could be loaded in the airship's hangars before being lowered into launching position. Of course, the primary question involved was what kind of planes could be used on board the airships, as not just any plane would do. Into this void came the Curtis F-9C Sparrowhawk. 
The planes had originally been designed for use aboard naval carriers, and as a prototype, the XF-9C-1 was delivered to the Navy in March of 1931. The 20-foot planes were armed with two 30-inch Browning machine guns, and in their initial carrier test, tested well. However, they proved to be unsuitable for use on carriers. Already, the Navy was working on their new airships, the ZRS-4 and the ZRS-5. Shortly after the successful testing of plane recapture aboard the Los Angeles, the Navy commissioned construction of the USS Akron and her sister ship, Macon, at the end of October 1929. The construction was done by the Goodyear Zeppelin Corporation, part of a joint project between Goodyear and the German Luftschiffbau, meaning airship construction, Zeppelin company. The airships were designed to be huge, to provide space for what would be four hangars. While the Hindenburg and the Graf Zeppelin were slightly longer, about 20 feet, and slightly more voluminous, neither of the German airships would have been using lifting helium, making the Akron and Macon the largest helium-lifted, rigid airships ever built. They were among the largest flying objects in the world at the time. Though construction began at the same time, the Macon differed from her sister in several significant ways. Perhaps most importantly, the Akron was only able to ever carry three planes, thanks to several structural girders that obstructed the aftmost hangars. The Akron could carry two planes in its hangars, plus one aboard the trapeze. While the Akron's bays were never fixed, the Macon was able to carry all five planes, four in the hangars and one aboard the trapeze. Another difference lay in the material used for the inflatable gas bags. France, Germany, and Britain primarily used gold-beater skin, which is made of animal intestine. Its name comes from its traditional use in gold-beating, a process of creating gold leaf. Half of the Akron's gas bags were made of Goodyear rubberized cotton, while the other half used an experimental cotton-based fabric suffused with a gelatin latex compound, which proved to be so successful that all of the Macon's gas bags were made of it. The Macon also received more advanced propellers. The Sparrowhawk had been chosen because it was relatively small, about 20 feet long with a 25-foot wingspan, although it had a number of significant drawbacks as well. It was heavy, as it had been originally been designed to withstand aircraft carrier landings, and it had relatively poor range and handling, and had poor downward visibility from the cockpit. As the planes were largely envisioned as a means to broaden the airship's use as reconnaissance tools, the Sparrowhawk was imperfect. A lighter, faster plane would have been ideal, however none existed that could fit within the ship's hangars. This kind of fighter, meant to be air-launched from a larger aircraft or mothership, is called a parasite fighter. In addition to their use aboard rigid airships, during the 20th century, various countries would experiment with heavy bombers that would carry parasite fighters for their own protection, though they were never widely used. In addition to the Sparrowhawks, the Macon was also capable of carrying two specially built two-seater Fleet Model 1s for training, and two two-seat WACO UBF XJW-1 biplanes were also built with skyhooks for use aboard the Macon. Ultimately, only a handful of planes were ever built for the ships. At least seven Sparrowhawks, of which only one survives and can be seen today at the National Air and Space Museum's Udvar Hazy Center in Chantilly, Virginia, and six of the Special Fleet Model 1s, in addition to a prototype. One difficulty of engineering stood above the rest during the construction of the sister ships. During the design stage, the fins were altered, as the Graf Zeppelin had nearly snagged her fin on power lines during takeoff from a field in California earlier that year. American officers had witnessed that near accident and sought to find a better system. The change, which included moving the control car, would allow direct observation of the fins, although the fins had to be moved and attached to an intermediate ring instead of a main ring. The Akron's maiden flight took place in September of 1931. The Macon didn't fly for another 20 months when it flew over northern Ohio for almost 13 hours on April 21, 1933. Unfortunately, the Macon never flew with her sister ship. The Akron was lost just weeks before on April 4th, 
1933, with a loss of 73 of her 76 crew. One of the surviving crew was Executive Officer Lieutenant Commander Herbert Wiley, who took command of the Macon in 1934. By then, the Macon was the only rigid airship in naval service. The Shenandoah was lost in 1925, and Los Angeles was decommissioned in 1932. The Macon served an important role, developing strategies and doctrine for using the airship for reconnaissance, especially in keeping the airship out of sight while the Sparrowhawks performed reconnaissance missions. The Macon's crew began removing the Sparrowhawks' landing gear and replacing it with a fuel tank, which gave the little plane 30% more range. On October 12, 1933, the Macon flew from the East Coast across the country to her permanent home base at Naval Air Station Sunnyvale, now Moffett Federal Airfield, near San Francisco. In April of 1934, the Macon flew cross-country to Opelika, Florida. Flying over mountains on the route would require the ship to reach or exceed its pressure height, that is, the height at which internal pressure of the gas bags is equivalent to external atmospheric pressure. At that height, the bags automatically vent air from the bags to prevent them from rupturing. For a time over Texas, heat from the sun caused helium to warm enough to force the ship to reach pressure height unintentionally. This forced the Macon to dump 9,000 pounds of ballast and 7,000 pounds of fuel and run its engines at full power to maintain lift and control in a gust storm near Van Horn, Texas, which caused two girders to fail. The crew was able to do emergency repairs, and the Macon arrived in Florida safely. The ship was grounded for more permanent repairs, but the full repairs were not completed. Most importantly, it was decided that strengthening the girders near the top talon could wait until the next scheduled overhaul, when the gas bags could be deflated. In July of 1934, with Herbert Wiley in command, the ship tracked the USS Houston, a cruiser then carrying President Franklin Delano Roosevelt back to California from Hawaii. The meeting was a complete surprise for the President and the Navy. Macon delivered newspapers to the President, and the Houston sent the following message. The President compliments you and your plans on your fine performance and excellent navigation. Well done, and thank you for the papers. The President. The following year, on February 12, 1935, repairs from the earlier damage were still not complete. The ship was returning to Sunnyvale after maneuvers, having participated in a fleet exercise off the Santa Barbara Islands when it was caught in a storm near Point Sur. The storm caused structural damage to a reen which held the upper tail fin, which failed completely. The fin broke away. Debris punctured several gas bags, and the crew immediately dumped all the ballast in an attempt to raise the tail and keep the ship in the air. The ship had lost around 20% of its lift, but the loss of an enormous amount of ballast forced the ship up rapidly, to an altitude of almost 5,000 feet, above pressure height, and the gas bags vented more helium. Historian Richard Smith suggests that the loss of the fin was not catastrophic, but that the failure of the making was due to the rapid abandonment of ballast in the first few minutes after the tail fin detached. He contends that it wasn't until the ship began venting more precious helium above its pressure height that the ship became doomed. The ship's engines also continued to run, which may have contributed to the ship's rapid climb as well. One witness described it. She plunged downward and then suddenly rose and disappeared into the storm clouds. The crew fought to regain control of the ship, which sunk relatively slowly over the course of almost 30 minutes following the initial accident. Wiley's first report was that the ship had a casualty in stern. He later radioed that we'll abandon ship as soon as we land on the water somewhere 20 miles off Point Sur, probably 10 miles at sea. Many witnesses and newspapers reported rumors of an explosion, however the damage to the airship was solely caused by the storm. After the ship had hit the water, it began to sink rapidly, within 20 minutes, while the crew fired off a rocket to announce their position. Already ships from the fleet that the Macon had been on maneuvers with were racing towards it. The USS Pennsylvania reported that Macon survivors located, assistance no longer needed. 81 of the 83 crew members were rescued, thanks to the fact that after the loss of the Akron, the ship had been supplied with life preservers. Commander Wiley was the only man to survive the crash of both ships. 
Two men died. Radio Man First Class Ernest Edwin Daly jumped ship too early, and Mess Attendant First Class Florentino Edquiba drowned attempting to recover personal belongings from the sinking ship. The crash marked the end of the Navy's use of rigid airships. Representative Carl Vinson held back a bill to build two more airships, saying that the loss of the Akron and Macon increases doubt of the practicability of airships. Others attempted to defend airships. Famous pilot and Indy 500 driver Eddie Rickenbacker said the crash should not discourage further development of dirigibles, but should lead to more intense research to perfect construction. Hugo Eckner, commander of the Graf Zeppelin, also declared that the loss doesn't prove the Zeppelin impracticable. The U.S. would not build any more airships, however, and technological improvements of planes would soon make them obsolete. Though lost only a short distance from shore, the wreckage was only relocated in February of 1991 by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. The ship had sunk 1,476 feet, too deep for most kinds of diving. In 2006, along with Stanford University and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, a number of remote vehicles took over 10,000 images and high-definition video of the wreck. The actual location remains a secret, but is within the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, established in 1992 and administered by NOAA. The Macon represented a unique time in aeronautics history when the dirigibles outpaced the fleet ships and served an important reconnaissance role. In the age of the graceful airships, despite all the disasters, certainly, well, captured the imagination. And the use of dirigibles as an aircraft carrier lives on in fiction. Heck, in 1938, Indiana Jones and his dad escaped a dirigible in an airplane. The wreck of the Macon includes four sparrowhawks, and only one other survives. It is in the collection of the Smithsonian Institution. So, the Macon is a later airship, and in some ways, you know, it's very, very similar to the Shenandoah, because it's not that mm -hmm. much later. Uh, but in other ways, it was very different from the Shenandoah. Yeah. And we've learned quite a bit in between the two, yep. and, uh, and then we're putting that to use. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting, because they were in a development process. Yeah. And, I mean, did we just not develop enough? Or, I mean, did we just find out that really they can't? I mean, given that we lost both Akron and Macon, it's kind of hard to say. Maybe we should have kept doing more. It's, that's kind of a tough sell, yeah. Well, and they, they were planning on doing more. Even you know even up to the to the loss of the Macon, they had mm -hmm. uh, plans for at least two more that were ordered. It, I understand why they decided that you know moving on with with that uh, line of technology was perhaps. Uh, not worth it anymore. You've got these two technologies that we saw as competing technologies, and, yeah. and they're coming together. They're making, and that's really fascinating. Uh, you know, the it, catching the airplane on the trapeze, taking it into the hangar. What a fantastic idea! Uh, you know, it'd be great for a movie. Be great for a book. Yeah. Turned out, turned out to be you know kind of, you know. <laughs> Only so successful in reality. Uh, and, you know, even if we'd like, we, we talk about, even if we carried that into the war, uh, I mean, certainly, you know, those planes weren't going to be as effective as, as scouting planes anymore. I mean, it was difficult to produce an aircraft for it. But that we yeah. were trying that same idea. I mean, years later, we're trying to figure out an idea of a trapeze uh, fighter so that you could carry a, an airborne mothership that could carry. Yeah. Uh, honestly, uh, a, uh, a, a, the Zeppelin is a better idea for that than a bomber because they'd have so much more space and hangar space yeah. and et cetera. But, I mean, you know, we ended up, you know, it turns out that aircraft carriers kind of became the future of naval yeah. combat. And so it was an interesting idea. So there's, there, I mean, it is, there you find very few, very little, you know, sort of historical footage that is more interesting yeah. uh, than them catching those planes on those trapeze, pulling them up inside the aircraft and in, inside the, 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 the Zeppelin and working on them, uh, the, the dirigible. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to see. Yeah. Amazing that we did that. You, 
you don't even believe that we did that. And now those, you know, you can go with an ROV and see those under the ocean. That's interesting too. Yeah, that's, you know, they were really, they were pretty interesting planes. Ultimately, you know, the the, the only reason that the, the Sparrowhawk was used at all, because uh, it didn't end up working for, you know, what they wanted it to do when it was on the carriers. Yeah, it didn't have a strong enough airframe for the carrier yeah. landings, yeah. And so it was just, the, the you know, the Zeppelins essentially saved, you know, that design. But yeah. I do wonder, I wonder if we had, you know, if we'd been able to put... Uh, R&D essentially specifically to a, a plane that would have been designed, you know, specifically to work on because they weren't perfect. They were they were too mm -hmm. heavy because uh, they were just they were supposed to, supposed to land on you know, on carriers and stuff. If we could have come up with a with a better plane um, that, you know, would have been more useful specifically to to that role. But it really is incredible that they could carry these things in the, that they had hangers inside the, the blimp. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not just one big balloon. It's they've got lots of space in there. Uh, yeah. that Maybe we'll I'll, do that now. We'll build one. We'll tether it. We'll put fighters in there, and they'll shoot down Chinese balloons. Well, we might need it. <laughs> I'm amazed too that they had the, that they had the communication skills to do what they were oh. doing then too, to get you know to send it off and come have it come back. And uh, it was developed sooner than I had thought about when I was yeah. watching that. Yeah. But what a crazy looking thing with those yeah. planes hanging down. But I mean, eventually they just took the wheels off the planes. They were never going to land. Yeah, right. <laughs> they, they didn't need the wheels on them. Yeah, they're just reducing the weight so that yeah, they could add more fuel and stuff to them. Does that make you nervous if you're flying around with an airplane that yes, doesn't have any hope, wheels? You better hope the Zeppelin's back. That gives you even better reason for you to guard your dirigible because your airship is the only place you can land. No, I don't like that wheelless deal. That's, that's, that's uh, trouble for the pilots. Yeah, I don't, they're not going to be anywhere else you're going to land those things. Um, you know, and this is a good way for us to talk about how you had mentioned in the, you know, when we were talking earlier, we never really moved past the experimental stage on, uh, on these, these Zeppelins, these rigid airships. They were all very interesting, but we were, and we were trying out all kinds of things and learning lots of new things, but we had never really figured out, you know, that where we were going to, what exactly their role would have been. We were still figuring that out, you know, when we built the Macon and the Akron is that this was, maybe this was a way that they could work. And they, they did actually all right. And, you know, when we did war games and stuff like that, they, they performed uh, decently. And it's cool that they were able to, to catch those planes with fair, I mean, fair accuracy, because it was years, years and years later, you know, when we were doing midair fueling and stuff like that and this was similar in that you had to had to get two things that were flying to match up at the same time it's crazy it's a really really yeah. truly crazy uh yeah they concept that little trapeze it's just hard to imagine you know? but you know on the other hand you know with those biplanes I mean, they did all you know the barnstormers did all sorts of crazy stuff they played tennis on top of the things so uh you know but i mean that would have to take a crazy skilled pilot but, i mean you're crazy like we had whatever the x1 tail sitter we had a we had an yeah. airplane that was supposed to land like a helicopter and pits and ships and stuff like that. We've tried all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, because the idea that you could uh, have a mothership and then launch an airplane because airplanes had relatively limited range was really fascinating. So yeah. It's really, I mean, it's just, I don't think that most people, I mean, we talk about forgotten history on the history guy. I don't think that most people realized that we had airships even, yeah. more or less, that we had airships that were built to carry airplanes and that we had that that vision. Uh, and it's it's just a really interesting part of history. And it's, uh, you know, it's really fun to look at those and say, you know, wow, that's a, uh, if anything else, you can see why if you were a little kid, you would love to have gotten you know, yeah. the, the toy Zeppelin and get Christmas like they had. Yeah. 
there's a toy zeppelin in uh, in christmas story <laughs> yeah you're like yeah i don't i don't play with that thing uh, so i mean it's it's a fascinating piece of history it's a fascinating piece of aviation history it's a fascinating piece of military aviation history it's a fascinating piece of american history uh, and in the end too it's a tragedy because so yeah. so many lives a lot these are people who put their entire risks lives at risk uh and you know one you know one commander that survived both the akron and yeah. the lake and that's yeah that's quite yeah. a story. He's the one guy who was on the yeah, Akron. I can Can you yeah. imagine getting onto the Akron and it? Because when the Akron went down, almost everybody on board died. Like yeah. what? Just a handful of people Don't survived. Three of them lived. Yeah. yeah. What, what they really learned from the Akron is that they had no plan for if you went into the water. They didn't yeah. have rafts. They didn't have life vests. Anything. And so most of them just sunk with the wreckage. And yep. that's you know one of the parts of the story is to say that that difference from the Akron, where where only like three survived, and the Macon, where only two died, and and both yep. of them you know by making mistakes. I mean they they really yeah. What do you survive. suppose he said though when they said, "Hey, do you want to run this other one?" Yeah, yeah. That's can you imagine being like, "Yeah, I'll go get on the, the, we're the back sister." Into that, that, you're you're, we're back on you're the, the single deal. officer who survived. <laughs> you want to go do it again? <laughs> I and I mean, fortunately, you know, when the, when the Macon went down, they were in a lot of ways in a better position. They were. It was relatively calm compared to when the Akron went down yes. and close to shore. And there were boats that were able and to they, get and there And it took quickly. a long time to go down. They had plenty yeah. of time to, to plan for that. Yeah. I mean, they knew they were going down. So, yeah, I mean, it's, but still, and that's when you think about it too, because if we talk about how big they are and instead of when you put that much resource into one chair, it's like losing an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Right? I mean, that is, that is a massive, massive loss. that is very, very difficult to replace. Uh, and uh, but you know that that piece of history is preserved as a shipwreck now. Yeah. And if, if everybody doesn't know, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, is the is the agency that manages shipwrecks in United States waters. Uh, so uh, they're they're the agency in charge of monitoring the Titanic, the agency that's in charge of monitoring the the Macon. And so it was also an interesting story that they discovered the Macon, that they know where it is, that we were able to use ROVs to to record that that yeah. uh, where that is. And uh, uh, it's all that's all history too. I mean, that underwater archaeology is very fascinating in its own way. So there's a yeah. there's a lot of amazing stories around. I mean, you would say maybe that you know the Macon was just a failed experiment, never never did anything in combat, it didn't actually last very long before it crashed, uh, and 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 they ended up being you know just kind of a, a novel item that we didn't yeah. pursue uh, but you could also say that this was an important part of history and the development of, of aeronautics and development of uh, tactics and planning for 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 military aviation and uh, and also just a, a great model of you know what what we could do i mean it's hard yeah. to imagine you know today it's hard even to imagine that we could build a flying machine that's as big as the empire state building and yeah, it would they land. That they could go to the Empire. <laughs> the Empire State Building was built to catch one, and you would call, yeah. call, walk off the end and go down to the Empire State Building. So, I mean, really, really cool. I mean, they're just fascinating. Yeah, they were. I mean, they were really amazing. Uh, well, I've been on a hot air balloon, so uh -huh. I guess yeah. It's so well. Not at least the hot air balloons. They don't usually go. Uh, we're usually smart enough not to put those up in a storm, right? That's the. Yeah. That's <laughs> weather again. <laughs> I, some weather there too. You know, when the Macon crashed, you know, they talked, they describe it. And I think of how crazy it must have been to, to have witnessed it, where you see this, I mean, huge, huge, huge thing uh, that they, they talk about it, uh, you know, falling down and then just shooting up, just flying up into the clouds. And I'm like, that must have been an incredible, mm -hmm. just an incredible thing to witness. And of, of course, you know, now, uh, as with any accident they start talking about you know who what the whose fault it was or what went wrong and they talked because they talked but we talked in the episode about how the the guy had said it was probably okay until they they were 
release too much ballast in the mm-hmm. uh, in the instance after after mm-hmm. it was damaged, and then that's probably what doomed it. Happens on ships too. I mean, yep. you, you make a reaction, and and uh, if you you know physics is involved, and if yep. you make the wrong reaction, so yeah, it's it's true. I mean, there were uh, all three of those accidents. There were various things that happened that you know you can rethink later, and uh, you know, uh, but we also cars crash and and airplanes crash and all the things that we have today still crash that space shuttles do so it's uh, and i we find out this week submarines so uh, submersibles Uh, so i I mean uh, you know they they all had their level of risk uh, and uh, and what we found out you know the age of airships wasn't very long uh, partly because other technologies simply surpassed them and partly because there's real limitations to trying to operate a vehicle that is the size of a skyscraper yeah Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.